Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Good morning, Mercy Commons, and welcome. We are in the book of Colossians, studying Paul's letter to the Colossian church, and this is part two in our series. And remember, the Colossian church was a church that was in danger of pursuing Jewish rituals. They were a church that was in danger of looking for special visitations and focusing too much on angels. And also at the same time, uh, they were in danger of separating the body as something that is evil and the spirit that is something that is good. What we see here as we continue uh, in the first chapter of Colossians is that Paul directly um, contradicts these heresies in a very kind of unique and subtle way. Instead of attacking them head on, um, as he will later on in the letter where he tells the Colossian church to do this and not do this, what he does is he elevates the person and work of Jesus Christ and uses him as a foundation from which to build. And so we're going to be looking at one of the most beautiful, poetic, powerful, and, and most importantly, empowering scriptures about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we look at Colossians 1 verses 15 to 23, and I'm going to be reading out of the ESV. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." Now, firstly, there's a couple of confusing titles when we look at verse 15 and we see that uh, it says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. What does what does the firstborn of all creation mean? And now words have uh, over time and centuries begun to change their meaning. I'll give you an example. The word awful is not something you would use to describe something good. But about a century ago, the word awful was used just like that. You would use the word awful in the same way that we would use the term awesome. Uh, it literally means full of awe. In fact, a God in early English was described as awful. God is awful. Nowadays, we don't use the term awful in that way. And in the first century, the word firstborn had similar usages. It doesn't mean created because we know that Jesus wasn't created. And it doesn't mean that he was created first. It means that all authority and claim belong to Jesus. It means that he is first in rank, in authority, in inheritance, and in control. And it's more accurate to look at the idea of firstborn as the one who would have the right to exercise all of these rights. Jesus is the creator and controller of everything. Everything. 
and he's the firstborn of creation, which means from the beginning. It means that he is the source of creation. He's the firstborn from among the dead, which means that he has authority over the dead. And he was the person that ushered us into eternal life. What does it mean to be the image of the invisible God? It means that if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. We know that because in the gospel, according to John, Jesus tells us this. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the exact image or imprint of God. Uh, the Greek word there is icon, which is where we get the word icon from. Or um, yeah, that's where we get the word icon from. Jesus is fully God and fully man. What Paul is trying to indicate to us is that he's not some angel or archangel. Now, the Gnostics taught that Jesus was some kind of spiritual emanation sent from God. Um, they couldn't um, really uh, reconcile the fact that he came in the flesh because flesh was something sinful and dirty. They couldn't reconcile that he was God. So he was like these days we would think of him as some kind of 3D hologram sent by God in order to teach us kind of a good way. Now, this is vastly incorrect and this is disputed by Jesus's words. Uh, where he clearly tells us uh, that he is God. It's also disputed by his actions. And we see that in the Gospel of John, John says that him we have heard and seen and touched. And that was important uh, because you can't touch a hologram. Now, it was also disproved by Jesus, not only when he, um, when he was incarnated on the earth, but it was disproved in his resurrection body. And we know that he was touched after his resurrection body. We know that Thomas touched the, uh, the scars in the palm of his hands and in his sides. And we also know that Jesus had breakfast with the disciples. Now, a hologram can't do that. Why is that important? Because Paul is kind of setting the stage to help the Colossian church understand that they are in danger of error. Now, the other important thing to recognize about this passage of Scripture is that Jesus is preeminent over, over three specific realms. And, it's, and, and this has implications for us. Now, over the past couple of weeks, the feedback that I've received is that um, trying to listen to me in a 25-minute sermon is like trying to drink from a fire hose. So what I've done is I've chosen to focus on one area. The three areas that Paul is looking at is firstly physical creation. And I had six whole reasons why we as Christians need to be actively engaged in creation stewardship because it was created in him, through him, by him, and for him. And we are co-heirs with him. But I don't have time to do that. Jesus is also the head of the body of the church. And we've spoken about this before and we'll speak about it again. But today I want to focus on the area that we don't talk about a lot. And that is the area of the spiritual realm. And I feel that during this time, it's even more essential than ever to wrap our minds around what Paul is talking about in verses 15 to 19. So let's look at this idea of the spiritual realm. Verse 16 in Colossians tells us this, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And now this is the tag that we use for our entire series, verse 17, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, Jesus is the creator and sustainer, in other words, holds things together of that which is very tangible. Our creation, the creation that we ourselves are a part of, it's tangible. We can, we can touch it. We can see it. 
He is also the one that holds all things together in the context of the spiritual realm, so something more ethereal. And the combination of the two, he is the head of the church, the concrete and the spiritual coming together where heaven and earth meet in the context of his church. So when God, which is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, created the earth, and we know that Jesus was there, because John tells us that in the beginning, And as he's talking about Jesus was the word, the word was God and the word was with God, meaning that Jesus was present um, because he wasn't created. He was always part of the Trinity. We know the spirit was there during the time of Genesis. So when God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit created the earth, they created two kind of overlapping realities, the heavens and the earth. Now, spiritual beings are part of the heavens and yet they engage in a crucial way with the earth. It's important, and Paul is telling us, that all spiritual beings were created. And all spiritual beings include Satan. Now, he's known by many names, but the most accurate would be enemy or adversary. He's the one that opposes. And in Ezekiel, we are told that he rebelled out of pride. Because instead of, wanting, instead of serving God, he wanted to be God. Now, this sounds really familiar, right? Because when Satan in the form of the serpent came to Eve, and what did he say to her? You can be like God. And so Satan was banished from heaven, like Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. And with Satan, a third of the angels were banished. And that's where we get demons. Now, what is the role of the demonic world? Their role is to ruin what God created. And they ruin it through lies, through distortions, through half-truths and temptations. Basically, what they do is they animate and exploit our own greed and selfishness and unsubmitted desires. It's the way that our flesh is responding to this broken world. And what they do is they take advantage of that. They do this on an individual basis in the sense that I myself can be personally tempted, but they also do it in a collective basis. That's why the language of dominions and thrones and principalities. Uh, because we see, um, we see the demonic spiritual beings active, not only on a global scale or in terms of governments, but also on a, on a personal scale. The most effective ways that uh, demonic activity can um, be best utilized by the enemy is to mix all three sources of sin. Now, Jesus tells us that all sin comes from the flesh, the world, and from the enemy. Now, the best thing that the, uh, the demonic forces can do is to mix all three of those things. So, for example, I have a desire given to me by God, but it's a disordered desire because of the fall of humanity. So I have a, desor- uh, a desire to be sexually active, which is a, a desire given to me by God, but it's disordered. Now, the world tells me it's fine. Whatever you want to do with that is fine. You should celebrate in that. And now comes um, an element of spiritual temptation, which says to you, yes, Your body wants to do it. The world tells you it's fine to do it. And God will be okay with that. That is the way in which demonic activity works on an individual basis. Now, why is the fact that Jesus created what we understand to be the demonic realm good news? Now, how is that good news? Could he just not have done that? Well, because you control what you create. All spiritual beings owe their existence and ultimately their final fate to Jesus. And so we know that in the letter to the Philippians, where Paul tells another church in Philippi that at the end of the age, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
that ultimately the one that creates is in control and that's what Paul is showing us. Now the challenge is that we ignore, we misunderstand or we inaccurately engage with this reality of the spiritual realm. Uh, C.S. Lewis in his book where uh, Wormwood is the kind of veteran uh, demon and he's trying to train a rookie um, demon, he, uh, he writes this book about spiritual warfare. Um, and in the preface, he says there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased with both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Now the Colossians are in danger of the second error. They're in danger of overemphasizing the importance and role of spiritual beings rather than the pursuit of intimate fellowship with Jesus. The Gnostics had this elaborate system of classification of angels and spiritual worlds, which is what Paul is getting at. But Paul reminds the Colossians that it doesn't matter what designation or which realm that Scripture highlights about Jesus, that ultimate power and position of Jesus Christ, and therefore us as co-heirs, is what has power over these entities. Even, the, even though the Colossians were being dragged into a heresy, there is one area where they were a little more ahead of us than we ahead of where the church is today. And that they understood that, that the spiritual realm is real and that spiritual warfare is real. Paul tells another church in um, Ephesus, and scripture says this in Ephesians 6, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers of this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Now, you may roll your eyes, you may know or have heard of that scripture many times. You may say, I don't even really understand it. Now, it's important to understand the context of what Paul is writing into. The context of what Paul is writing into, there is flesh and blood that is actively opposing him. Um, Alexander the coppersmith was mad at Paul uh, because when Paul came and preached the gospel, many people came to faith in Jesus Christ and threw away the idols that this coppersmith was making. So he was causing a lot of trouble for him and so was Hymenius. But he doesn't say, make sure you beat up Alexander and Hymenius. He does call them out so that the church can be aware of them. But he reminds the church that the battle is not specifically with Alexander and Hymenius. The battle is between, it's not flesh and blood, but with spiritual principalities. And so engaging it just on a purely physical level is not going to gain the victory. Now, spiritual warfare is not a synonym of right thinking or right believing. That helps. But it is the active engagement of the authority that we have under the direction and authority for the glory of Jesus Christ. A simple thing. Worship is spiritual warfare. Why? We are declaring into the atmosphere where the heavens and the earth are kind of mixing that Jesus Christ is Lord. We are telling truths about who he is and about our submission to that. Prayer is spiritual warfare. Right decisions in line with scripture is spiritual warfare. But also standing up against the temptation of the enemy is also spiritual warfare. And the idea of demons maybe freaks you out a little bit. Uh, you may have even tuned out right now. But just stay with me a second. Um, when, when we as Westerners think of demons, we, we think of maybe some kind of temple. Uh, when I was in Myanmar, I went to this amazing temple and, and I saw people bowing to all sorts of idols. 
when I was in Thailand, I was, I was driving past this open field and in this open field there, there was a whole lot of like wood, little wooden temples and, and idols and Buddhas and all sorts of things. And I asked Daniel Yu, I, I said to him, Daniel, what is that? He said, well, that's an idol junkyard. I go, well, what are you talking about? And he says, well, you know, every so often um, the houses and the churches, they, they need to refurbish their idols, you know, because the paint... Um, kind of cracks and, and, and there are better options available for them, but they're, they're too scared to burn them or destroy them. So what they do is they, they designate a place outside of town, you know, to put their gods. So I'm like, hang on a second. Hang on, hang on. They're buying new gods and they're afraid that their old gods will be mad if they destroy them. So they put them out here and he's like, yeah. Now that sounds ridiculous to us, but let me propose this. Maybe our idle junkyard is our garage or our bank account or our desire for promotion. Maybe what we look at in the so-called first world as so uncivilized is actually something that we ourselves are guilty of. Now, you've heard of the term nose blind. Now, when I go and visit my friends in Chino, I close the door to the car and I'm like, what the what was that? None of them can smell it because they've been around it for so long and so they don't smell it. We, we become nose blind to certain things. And, and because we live in this sophisticated culture, we believe that these things are not really happening or dangerous for us. When we get confronted with an idle kind of uh, uh, junkyard or when we get confronted with a temple, we kind of shake our heads. The reality is, is that because deception is so active in us, that spiritual beings are active in our thoughts and motives and, and, and our desires and not in a specific place. Church, we don't live in a no man's land. We covered this last week. We're not Switzerland. We, we can't be neutral in this. Um, the spiritual realm, as we are part and co-heirs with Jesus Christ, we have basically been commissioned as soldiers of the king. And so ultimately, we need to understand that this is not like a war. This is a war. It's a different war, though. It's a guerrilla war. This is the kind of war where there isn't necessarily a full frontal attack or a battle line. This is a war that's kind of built on camouflage, on ambushing. And this is something that we need to be very aware, to, uh, aware of. One of the things we maybe need to ask ourselves is, as, as Christians, are we worshipping at the altar of self-indulgence and self-expression? Are we worshipping the God of coolness, acceptance, and worldliness? Are we worshipping the God of uh, fulfilling our sexual desires or whatever materialistic needs we have? Are we worshipping at the altar of comfort, convenience, safety, and security? Now, we as a community believe that God is active. Um, and He's active through signs, through dreams, through prophetic words, even angel visitations. Now, all of these are biblical. Uh, I can open the New Testament and show you many uh, of the situations where these things have, have happened. But if we embrace the work of the Spirit, then we have to also understand and be equally aware that the enemy of our souls is not resting uh, and that he is looking for an opportunity to tempt us to, to be able to make us more complacent or even turn our backs on our Savior. But we have authority in Jesus Christ. And I want to read these scriptures and I want them to wash over you. Because even as I've been speaking, maybe, maybe you're a little agitated or fearful. 
Or maybe you're like, whatever, this stuff isn't, isn't real. I, I just want you to listen to these scriptures. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Later on in Colossians, Paul says that he, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, them, uh, triumphing over them in his cross. Philippians 2 verse 10 to 11 says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our authority is in the name of Jesus. That means in the present and active work of the alive Jesus that we worship. It is in Him, it is by Him, it is through Him and for Him that we engage His strength and energy to be able to glorify God, to overcome the temptation of spiritual forces. Our authority is received and used, but it doesn't need to be proven through bravado. Bravado is not faith. But the Bible also teaches us that when we ask God of things, that we need to do it confidently, expecting that we will receive what we have asked for. Our job is to apply and enforce the victory that Jesus has already won through his death and most importantly, resurrection. So how do we exercise this authority of applying and enforcing the victory that Jesus has already won? Now, this is a very cursory look at this. But the first thing that we need to do is to be sober minded and watchful. Peter, another apostle used by God in the Holy Scriptures, says this, 1 Peter 5 verse 8, Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary or your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. What does being sober mean? It's the opposite of being drunk. It means clear-headed and not preoccupied. Um, my um, Karin's cousin um, was busy was dating, actually he was engaged um, to his now wife and they were a very wealthy, well-to-do family and uh, they invited him on a trip to Australia. And uh, so he was sitting in the aeroplane with his um, mother-in-law-to-be and she had taken a sleeping tablet, quite a powerful sleeping tablet um, that she'd never taken before. A trip to Australia is a long trip. And they were given their meal as the plane was taking off. And what happened was the, the sleeping tablet began to make her not sober. And so she looked at him and just grabbed his dessert off his tray. And he's looking at her and she's acting all agitated. He doesn't know what to do. He's completely kind of dumbfounded by this woman who's usually quite prim and proper. So he decides to let that go. Five minutes later, she literally just falls forward, slap bang into her food tray. To this day, they have not spoken about that moment. It's what happens when you're drunk, you're not aware of your surroundings. You do things that you wouldn't otherwise normally do. Being watchful is the opposite of being sleepy. Um, it means like a sentry, you have these quick twitch muscles. These days, being watchful is not being on your phone the whole time. Um, I've seen videos of, of people on their phone literally walking into fountains. Tragically, we, we've even heard of people that have been on their phones that have fallen to their death. Now, being watchful and sober is what, what Scripture is telling us to do. Soberness and vigilance 
is being aware of dangerous situations. That dangerous situation could be a dangerous situation sexually or financially or relationally or morally. And the problem that we have is all this drama and all these movies that we associate with exorcisms and spiritual warfare is just another way that we are being deceived at the reality of what we're faced with regards to temptation. There is a massive difference between being vigilant and watchful and being afraid the whole time. I'm not suggesting that we go demon hunting behind every bush, but what I am saying is this. There is a reality to the war that we're part of. And Paul is clearly helping us understand that Jesus is in charge of all of those things. Let's access him to be able to live a life that's worthy of the call of God. Now, I want, I want you to ask some practical questions. Even right now, wherever you're watching this, maybe you're watching it on Sunday morning or later on. Um, if you're watching it later on, you could just pause this and wait for a better time. But I really want you to be thoughtful about this. Uh, because this is our opportunity to be sober and watchful. And these are some questions I want you to think about that could mean that what you're facing is more than just the reality of a broken world. But it could mean that, that you're actually needing to access Jesus on your behalf in order to gain authority over what might be oppression or temptation. So here are some of these questions. Am I believing things that I know cannot be true about myself? about others, or about God? Am I stuck in a sin, or a relationship, or a thought cycle, and I believe I'm powerless to be free from that? Have I given up? And by given up, I mean, have I given up trying to resist sin, or have I given up pursuing Jesus? Do the people of God, the word of God, and the worship of God agitate me more than encourage me? Or are there a, a, what I call a cluster of coincidences that are all happening to you at the same time that really discourage you and, and dry kind of your internal soul and you feel like this is too much for you to handle? Now, if you've answered yes, to those questions, there may be the opportunity for you to engage Jesus to be set free from some kind of spiritual oppression. Now, how do we do that? The Bible is, is clear on this. We submit to God and resist the devil. The first thing we do is submit to God and resist the devil. In the book of James, James tells us in James 4 verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The devil is the father of lies. The first thing we need to understand is I am being lied to and I'm beginning to believe this lie. Well, we, the way we submit to God is we confess that sin. We ask God for forgiveness. We may need to ask others for forgiveness. We confess the lie and we embrace the truth. Submission to the one that is overcome is the key. We're not going to defeat evil simply because we stand up to a bully. The bully is defeated when we stand behind the one who has stripped him of all his power, and that is Jesus Christ. That's why James is very clear. The first thing we do is submit to Jesus. In submitting to Jesus, we automatically resist and oppose the devil. And now this is not a polite ignorance or ignoring. You know, when, when someone knocks at your door, 
and they happen to be selling something and you don't want it, you can be polite and say, no, thank you. I don't need my windows done. I know that they're broken and all of those kinds of things. When someone is a thief, you're not polite about that at all. And so let's not kind of pretend like he's not there. Let's make sure that if there's a sense in which we feel some sense of demonic temptation or oppression that we oppose, that we are hostile towards, that we counterattack, that we fight this not in our own strength, but in the strength that Christ has given us. When This is the most frustrating thing, and this is what we don't understand. It's the devil that tempts us. The devil then leads us into sin and then turns around and condemns us. That's not the life that God wants you to live. And he's, he's made a way for you to be able to, if you failed, to confess and repent and come back to him and not to be caught in his accusations. He is the accuser, the opposer, the plaintiff, the adversary. He's the enemy of your soul. We also need community. Now, it's a cliche, but it's tried and true. The old, the young, the tired and the separated are the ones that the lion picks off first. We've seen, I've seen this video of this older buffalo that this, um, that this, these, uh, this pride of lions is beginning to attack. And all of a sudden you see this herd of buffalo come out and attack this pride of lions. And, and sometimes we need the community to come around us. Um, it's not our fault that we're young or old or tired. Maybe it is partly our fault that we're separated. But in reality, I know and I've been in situations where I've said to people, I've literally looked at them and I said, stop listening to the devil. You are listening to the lies and accusations of the one who is the enemy of your soul. And sometimes we need someone to do that with us. That's why corporate prayer is important. This is not an intellectual thing. This is not an academic thing. This is a spiritual thing. That's why worship, sitting under the truth is important. That's why being with God's community is important. It enables you not to be afraid of the lion. Remember, everyone is going through a battle. We just don't know what that is. Now, if you're firm and you're resisting, we need you. But if you're fragile and and scared, we want to surround you. Now, we are more privileged than the angels. What are you talking about, Nick? Well, throughout Scripture, there is a clear separation between what is humanity, the realm of earth, and what what are angels in the realm of the heavens. And you would think um, that actually that angels have a higher status than humans. I mean, of course, they can do the most amazing things, right? But actually, angels were given to us to serve the purposes of God. God chose us, humanity, to rule with him and have intimate fellowship with him, not the angels. In fact, Peter tells us that the angels are not only aware of this extravagant plan of salvation, they are not partakers of it. It says that they longed to look into. This is like a messenger that gives you this amazing cake and he's not invited to eat it. And so this is what happens where where Paul is saying you are actually in such a privileged position. Because it's not about angels or archangels or all of these experiences. It's about being invited into intimate fellowship with Jesus Christ. Verse 21 says this. Once you were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death. In order to present you holy, blameless and above reproach. Now we don't really believe this. 
Paul is, is reminding us of our pre-Christ status, not to lower the, our own view of ourselves, but to elevate our view of ourselves because Jesus has elevated us. Now, shout out to gospel patrons. Uh, there's a woman, there was a woman a long, long time ago called Lady Huntington, not like the beach, Hunting Don. And um, she was a patron of a man called George Whitfield. Uh, she, she kind of bankrolled George Whitfield and had a massive impact uh, in the awakening in the United Kingdom. And one of the things she would do is she would write letters in the context of her sphere of influence. And she wrote a letter to this woman, the Duchess of Buckingham. Um, and she invited her to come and listen to George Whitfield. And part of the response of the Duchess to this invitation by Lady Huntington is this. It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting. And I cannot wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiments so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. As I said, I've been uh, watching Downton Abbey, so this is really part of that whole kind of scene. Why is that important? Paul's uh, scripture as a whole, but specifically what we need to understand is there is nothing, no behavior, no culture, no status, no rank, no gender that has one, an advantage over the other. It's not your high rank. It's not your good breeding. In the eyes of God, we were all those that were alienated and hostile and doing evil deeds. But through Jesus, we have been rescued. There may be elements of different cultures that are more godlike. Uh, in third world cult cultures, the idea that the community is more important than the individual is more godlike. In other cultures, the idea that, that we can and should strive for greatness also represents something of Jesus. That's why we look forward to an age where every tongue, race, tribe will be represented at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Now, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection means that we're no longer alienated, but that he has made us holy. What does that mean? He has set us apart so that we can live a life that brings attention to him, that we are guiltless. Now that means that none of my sin counts against me. I am completely forgiven. And if that wasn't enough, I am above reproach. That means that no one can shame me, that there is no condemnation or penalty. So when the enemy begins to whisper at me in terms of my own holiness or set-apartness, I tell him to look at Jesus or I engage him. I tell him in the name of Jesus to stop talking to me because I'm not listening. When he tells me about my guilt, I remind him of the sacrifice of Jesus. And when he tells me that I should be shamed for the way in which I've behaved, I remind him that my shame has been taken by Jesus. Paul speaks to the Romans in the context of what can separate us from God, whether it's heavens or earth. And this is the scripture I'd like to end with out of the New Living Translation. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Mercy Commons and anyone else who's listening, can we be watchful and sober, not panicky and fearful? Can we submit to God resisting the devil? And can we ask for and offer help to one another? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your tremendous kindness, 
but thank you for your amazing power. Thank you that, that this is a reminder, not only that it's the kindness of God that has rescued us, but it is the power of God that keeps us. Thank you that we do not need to fear, but we are able in the power and the might that Jesus Christ has given us through the name of Jesus for the glory of God to be able to submit to you and resist the devil and he will flee. God, help us to be a set-apart people that make much of you. Help us to be a people that bring light and salt into this world. I pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.